If you guys had to say what percentage of the knowledge of Jesus do you have? Can you put a number on that? Like, just of all there is to know about Jesus, like the truth about Jesus, not even just what's in scripture, but just all there is to know. Like, what, what do you think we got as an individual? Do a negative? Because yeah. <laughs> that's something that's we're always being some like something is always being revealed to us, so we can never truly know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Ooh. It's, ooh. Ooh. Hey, where are you breathing? I'm gonna pick back up on that thought. Come in. category to even think in mm-hmm. because it's infinite it's like what percentage of infinite how close do we get to a finish line that doesn't exist yeah it doesn't matter you're saying the knowledge like how well there is no knowledge do we know of christ and to know christ fully is is in it, he is infinite yeah and that would require an infinite knowledge yeah. and so a percentage i i don't think it it works like that <coughs> um, because you can come up with a small enough percentage. Though. My answer would be, we don't know Christ at all, and we know Christ fully, which is a logical contradiction in the yeah. because we because it can't be set up in like how much you know Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, like you, yeah, like you you can't put it in a percentage like. It's like he's given us all of himself to know, but with the caveat that we can't know him completely. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, we yeah. we certainly do know him. We can say for certain of believers that know him, we know yeah. him. Um, yeah. Now, are you measuring, like, from the person who, the human, who knows him the most, most and how much we know about him compared to the guy the of all there is to know about oh okay yeah, Jesus. yeah. so and I think I know just past the star on the left as far as it goes. <laughs> um, or, or you can say of, maybe of all the knowledge that Christ <coughs> has like what <coughs> what amount of that knowledge do we have and just for illustration's sake let's come up with a Fraction. Okay. Um, what's the largest number that we know? Infinity. Not infinity. That's beyond. 
Not a no like what's the largest known <laughs> common name for a number? No trillion? No uh, I had to look it up. I didn't know. Nine hundred and ninety-nine trillion. Gillian, I don't know if that's wrong. <laughs> so legit. legit. Now it's debatable because some people the dictionary changes and all these things, but the um, a one with a hundred zeros after it is called a Google. Oh my Have you all heard that before? Mm -hmm. That's where Google actually pulled their name from. But Google, it's spelled G-O-O-G-O-L. Uh, just some trivia. Google, since you can't copyright a, or you can't trademark a, um, a, a, an already a common word, they had to spell it differently. So that's where they came up with Google. That's what I read anyway. Um, but that's a one with a hundred zeros after it. There's actually, I guess, it, you can do a one with the highest number that has been quantified that I could find was um, a centillion, which is a one with 303 zeros after it. Um, 303? Yeah, it's all like, you know, every three new zeros, you get a new name. You have a thousand, and then you have a, uh, well, not with a hundred, okay, a million, then you have whatever, a billion, billion, trillion, those are all three more zeros. And so they have the three more zero names all the way down for whatever reason to one centillion, I don't know. Anyway, uh, big number, but uh, another number of a Google, which is one with a hundred zeros, they also have what, like some people will say, a Googleplex, which is a one with a Google amount of zeros after it. <coughs> so that's a Googleplex, just so you know. So let's just estimate, that's the biggest number, some others say there's Googleplexy on, and that means the one with a Googleplex number of zeros, anyway. But let's just estimate. Of all the knowledge of Christ, about Christ, of all that he, of all that we could know about him, that way, we'll say that we have one, one Googleplex, which is a word, of the knowledge of Christ. Just go with me on that number, okay? One, one Googleplex. That's the fraction. Come on, Yeah, no worries. Have a seat. So, I love the other day when Christian was here speaking, he, um, we were looking at the different, the different miracles um, that Jesus did, um, and one of those, or he asked, he asked us just to consider, or one of the lines that I remember him saying is, there's more for us to see, we need to realize there's always more for us to see about the bigness of Jesus, like he's always got more to reveal to us about how, how great he is, what he can do, I mean with the disciples it's not only can I heal somebody that's possessed by a demon, somebody with a withered hand, I can calm the seas, I can walk on the water, I can, it's kind of one thing after another, I can raise somebody from the dead, just on and on. And Christian was saying there's more for us to see about the bigness of Jesus. So where we're at in the gospel here, um, of Mark, there is, um, there's been a lot of miracles performed. The miracles kind of are coming to a, a stop just in the way that Mark records it. I don't know that Jesus stopped doing miracles. We just don't read it a lot more at this point. Um, we're going to look at one kind of final one here tonight. Uh, the way that... So the disciples have been shown a lot of who Jesus is. A lot of the things that he can do, they're learning more and more about Jesus. You could say they're kind of starting to hone in on who Jesus is, right? They've got a long way to go and an infinite amount of a way to go of actually fully comprehending who Jesus is. 
um, but they are getting to know him. Even next week, we'll see Peter makes this great confession. He acknowledges Jesus as Christ, which is true, but then we're going to see that he actually isn't completely understanding what that means even correctly. So as we get kind of to today, we're going to see how blind the disciples really are. And it's embarrassing how dumb they are. Okay? Um, see if you can see, even in the first ten verses that we read, we're going to go through a lot of this chapter, but even in the first ten verses, see, see what sticks out as an overarching reason why it's like, are you kidding me, disciples? Verse one, in those days, when a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his, disciple answered, his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in a desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? <coughs> He said seven, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people <coughs> he sent to the <coughs> Forgetting about just the little details of this, why do you guys, why am I saying it just seems like the disciples are so dull or clueless? Because it's just happened. Yes, the thank you. Same thing happened. Like a chapter ago, and probably within the same like amount or a small amount of, of time and duration as it's recorded in the Gospels, like this is almost literally the exact same miracle that he just performed on the other side of the lake. I mean, if you like put the details side by side, there are so many things that it's the same. He, he, Jesus expresses, he has compassion for the people. And he, he sits them down on the grass and he asks the disciples, how many loaves? Like everything, the numbers are changed. Like it's 4,000, 5,000, 7 loaves, 12 loaves. But it's like the exact same thing. A lot, it's so close. The story is so close. There's a lot of people years later as they're looking at the gospels they're like this just this must have got confused this must be the same story and they just accidentally recorded it twice and switched up the numbers but as we'll see at the at the next or in the next section jesus actually refers to both of the miracles it's literally two of almost the exact same thing happening detail by detail so if we were reading through the book of mark just as it is and we weren't stopping every week after just a chapter or a half a chapter we would be rolling our eyes at the ignorance of these disciples. We'd be like, wait a second, I feel like I just read that because it's nearly an identical story. They completely, they're, they're completely unaware and, and dumb to what has just happened. And just wait. This isn't going to be the last time they prove to be not so perceptive tonight. Hey, hey, hey. Come on in. Late. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, verse 10, Mark 8, verse 10. 
And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now again, I think like Jesus has already done some miracles. Right? <coughs> and surely the Pharisees, like, they've seen some of them, and maybe they haven't seen, but they've heard about all these miracles. You just fed 4,000 people and 5,000 people before that. Like what, what more could you want from somebody? Like show us a sign. He's, he's showing them these crazy miracles. But the Pharisees weren't seeking a sign to see that Jesus could do more amazing things. That's not the type of sign. That's not really a sign. That's just showing the power of somebody. It doesn't necessarily signal anything. So just because Jesus does something supernatural, as he has and as they've heard about, it doesn't, in their minds, doesn't necessarily mean that he's Messiah or mean that he's God. If you, back in the day, there, it was more common than there is nowadays to have different miracle workers who would go around towns and stuff, and they would arguably perform miracles on people and help people. And if it's hard to um, believe that that could have happened, then it's probably also hard for us to believe that there's people who were possessed by demons, and that was actually a reality too. So there was... There was it, just because Jesus could do some amazing things. Now, I don't know anybody else in the history of the world that's walked on water or told the storm to stop or these things. But nevertheless, it, you could maybe argue that it, these are just these are signs of power, but they're, they're, they don't necessarily show a sign of something in particular. So what the Pharisees were seeking was a sign to authenticate or deny a particular truth about Jesus. They, they wanted to find something out about Jesus, uh, namely, they wanted a sign to authenticate, are you the Messiah? Or, or probably they were seeking a sign to deny that he is the Messiah that they had been looking for, that they'd been waiting for. So show some sign to show that you're doing these things on behalf of God. Show some sign that these aren't being done on behalf of Satan, like they accused him earlier of. So We've talked about this before, but the, the, the Jews were looking for a Messiah to come who would immediately overthrow the worldly Roman Empire who was oppressing them and restore the glory of Israel. That's who they're looking for, and so they're saying, show us a sign from heaven that is unmistakable, that you aren't just another miracle worker, but that you are endorsed by God himself. Can we just hear a voice from God? I don't know that they heard the one when Jesus was baptized. We don't even know if anybody heard that except Jesus and I think John the Baptist. But they're like, we want to see something like literally that is, is God telling us that, that, that you are the man in this? Or can you, can you just light up and like show us that you are God himself and son of God? Like, can you just show us something? Um, interestingly, these things, these types of things, he actually shows three disciples um, two weeks from now. Uh, we'll look at that. But they're looking for something big, something epic, something um, triumphant, some kind of sign that would cause them to have assurance that 
that Rome was about to be overthrown. So in the Old Testament, when you have a prophet, if you want to confirm that their prophecy is going to be true, they would perform a sign so it would, it would guarantee that the future prophecy was going to happen. If I want to be sure, if you say that such and such is going to happen, well, give me a sign of that. So if they do a little miracle here, oh, if you can do that, then what you say in the future is going to happen. They want to see some kind of sign from Jesus that... As Messiah, he's going to accomplish what they expect him to accomplish. So no more little miracles, no more feeding hungry people, opening blind eyes, casting out demons. That doesn't give us what we want, Jesus. We want proof that you are God's Messiah. Understand, they're looking for proof. They're not just looking for power, some display of power. They're looking for, for proof of his Messiahship. It may sound familiar to you. I don't know if you guys have ever heard somebody say before, I will believe in Jesus if he proves to me that he exists. I've heard that recently. I'll believe if, if he just would give me a sign, if he would prove to me that he exists. Um, maybe, maybe you've even said something similar to that, like, God, if you're out there, would you give me a sign? Just show me, and then I'll believe in you. Essentially, that's kind of similar to what the Pharisees are saying. Jesus, if you're from God, if you're the Messiah, then prove it. Show us. <clears throat> What's wrong with that statement? Not just the Pharisees, but when you hear somebody say, I will believe in Jesus if he just proves to me that he exists. What's, what are, what's possibly wrong with that statement? Thank you. Okay, good. That's not belief, or that's that's not faith. You could say, right? Um, Jesus wants us to to trust him, right? To put our faith in him. For by grace you have been saved through. You've been convinced by the miracles, <laughs> or by grace you've been saved by empirical evidence, or by grace you've been saved through proof of the existence of God. No, it's, it's you've been saved by faith. And that's what Jesus, we've seen time and time again through faith, that's what Jesus is actually desiring from people as they come to him. That's how the people who are rightly approaching Jesus in the gospel, he, they come to him, they believe, God, if you are able, or if you are willing, you're able to heal, and it's your faith has made you well, your faith has made you well, and he sends people on their way, oftentimes because of their faith. So he does plenty, Jesus does plenty of miracles for people who demonstrate faith. But it's, it's usually faith first and then the miracle. So <coughs> believing because you've been cognitively convinced is not exactly faith, is it? According to Hebrews 11, faith is being convicted of things not seen. We walk by faith and not by sight, Paul says. The Pharisees are walking by sight. Show us, let us see a sign. They want unmistakable proof, but unmistakable proof is called unbelief, or, or they're seeking unmistakable proof is just unbelief. So when you think about when you come to faith in Christ, it happens when you believe his word, not necessarily because it's been proven into you, right? Like there's no way that I can literally myself go back and verify that Jesus is who he said, that he rose from the dead. Like I can 
I'm, I'm believing this word as it's been passed down to me. I'm believing that that's true. I think we can look at the, the evidences and see how it's ridiculous to think otherwise, but, but can, like, I, there's, there's faith that I'm exercising as I believe this. And, and you can't just you know, make or force the belief into somebody by showing them enough evidence, right? That's just not faith. And so the problem, what the Pharisees are wanting is they're, they're squashing this opportunity to exercise faith and if you don't have faith, Jesus isn't just going to entertain you with his miracles, right? He's going to move on to others who might have faith. So that's, Jessica, you're right. That's one thing. When somebody says, I'll, I'll believe in Jesus if he would just prove to me that he exists. What's another problem, maybe, with that statement? You're asking for something but not giving anything? <coughs> okay, maybe, oh, yeah, maybe, <coughs> I like that. Maybe you're asking um, just in, in kind of a, a selfish way. I guess. Yeah. What else? I, I believe, I will believe in Jesus if he just proves to me that he exists. Well, it, oh, go ahead. I, yeah. So I think if God really wanted to, he could make all of us believe in him, right? but I don't yeah. think that's God's desire for us. He mm -hmm. is most glorified when he has given us the free choice mm -hmm. to choose to follow him. So I just feel like it's, I mean, I think when I look at the absolute power of God, like, he has every power to make all of us to believe in him, but then we we will be forced to do so. So part of our faith is recognizing that he has given us a choice to choose to follow him. So I think it's just contradictory to the fundamental of our faith is, you know, we're not being forced to follow God. Yeah. He could do that to us. He could he could make each and every one of us believe, but in his sovereign plan he doesn't yeah what were you gonna say here i was thinking about like the end of job where like job just spends the whole book like complaining to god like oh why is this happening to me why all this why all this and at the end god just pretty much just like tells him like um yeah when all of this stuff was happening when i pretty much created all the world and spun exist like spun creation into existence where were you like who are you to ask me to prove to you who i am or why any of this is fair or just or whatever. That's it's kind of it's kind of a similar thing where it's like, okay, I'm a human who's fallible and incomplete. God, why don't you prove to me that you are perfect, complete one? Yeah, yeah, that's, like, that's ironic. It's wrong and, seat. Yeah, so the wrongness in it is just, it's, who, who do you think you are even asking that? That, that question shouldn't even be a, yeah. a, con a consideration of it, yeah. What, is that true? If, if somebody sees something, a particular sign or miracle, will they necessarily be convinced? No. no. That, yeah, that's another big problem with the statement, right? Just because you see a sign or a miracle, <coughs> it doesn't mean that you'll be convinced enough to believe based just on those facts that you've just seen before your eyes. If you aren't willing to trust Christ you will always be able to figure out a way or an excuse why that sign wasn't sufficient enough or why it didn't, that didn't actually prove what you were looking for. If you, if, that, if you don't will to have a will to follow him, then you'll be able to dismiss it and come up. Like signs you can read maybe in different ways. Miracles can maybe be a little ambiguous. Um, if you remember when the Pharisees saw the crazy miracles of Jesus, they're like, he does these by the power of Satan, and Jesus is like, that's a horrible argument, I'm casting out demons, why would I even do that? But, 
you know, you're just, you're scrambling for things to try to explain what I'm doing. Even if you see these things before your very eyes, it's not like you're necessarily going to be convinced because you don't want to be convinced, uh, which is a good thing that we don't have to be convinced by signs and wonders. Mark 12, we'll read in a few weeks, there will be a day when false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. You don't always just want to say, well, there, I, I saw this amazing thing, so I, I have to believe that. That's not necessarily strong enough to believe. Um, in Matthew's version of this same account, Jesus says, he adds, or there's an additional part that Matthew records, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, he says. And the sign of Jonah, without spending a lot of time on it, basically is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, I'm going to give you a sign, and it's going to be when I come back from the dead. Um, and I, I think you would say, well, that's the, that's the undeniable sign that validates who Jesus is, this resurrection. But you remember the rich man and Lazarus and Jesus telling the rich man, hey, they won't even be convinced if somebody comes back from the dead. Like, you can do the wildest, most berserk kind of signs and wonders you want to, and it's not necessarily going to change somebody's mind if they're not willing. So when somebody says, I believe in Jesus, I'll believe in him if he proves to me that he exists. One, they're, maybe they're just saying, I'm not willing to follow, I'm not willing to trust him, I'm not willing to exercise faith. And two, they're lying to themselves because somebody could even come back from the dead and they will find a way to, to work around it. But there's a third problem with that kind of thinking, what the Pharisees are asking for. So the Pharisees think Messiah, the Messiah is going to look like this. He's going to be a strong, powerful military leader. He's going to be anti-Rome. He's going to probably come, I mean, who knows all what they thought. He's probably going to come from good religious stock. He's going to keep the letter of the law. He's going to praise the Pharisees for all the work that they've done and all the good work that they're doing. And they have this idea of the Messiah that's partially true, partially inaccurate, and they're saying, prove to us, give us a sign that you're this guy that we've come up with. Prove to us that you're him. Do something to show us that you're the version of the Messiah that we think the Messiah is. See, they want a sign from Jesus for him to prove somebody that he's not really. They don't have a full understanding yet of who the Messiah is, and maybe still yet. Uh, David Garland, the commentator, said they want Jesus to give them proof of what they want to be true. It's like, um, it's called confirmation bias, right? When it's like, you have this idea and you want to prove it, and so you just round up a bunch of evidence, throw out all the wrong evidence that doesn't support what you're wanting to be true, and you just are looking for the evidence just to support. Like, that's bad science, or that's bad uh, surveying, or that's confirmation bias. That's not who Jesus is, so he's not going to give you a sign to try to prove somebody that he's not even, that you've come up with. Was he, uh, were the Pharisees there when he, when he gave the, the guy a side fact? They were, because they went back and asked um, that they wanted to confirm whether he was born blind or not. Correct? Yeah, he heals a couple blind guys. Um, not sure, Charles. They've seen some miracles. Like they've seen the, the paralytic walk. Um, I'd, I'd have to look into it. He's about to heal um, another blind guy at the end of this chapter, so we'll look at that one tonight. Um The problem in the Pharisees' request 
it, it seems like it seems reasonable. Ask, they're asking for a sign, right? But they're eliminating the opportunity for faith. They're incorrectly expecting us that a sign would actually cause belief. And even if it did convince them of something, it may be proving the wrong Messiah to them, or just the Messiah of their imagination. So we have the ignorant disciples who are like, oh, I can't believe, what are we going to do when we have thousands of people and only a few loaves of bread? What are we going to do when they just saw it? But they continue following Jesus, and they're, they're learning from him over time. And then you have the Pharisees, who are also ignorant in a way, but they don't think they are. They think they know, and they want to prove what they know. Verse 13. And he left them, got into a boat, and went to the other side. Jesus loves doing it. I mean, he's constantly back and forth over Galilee. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in a the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, I think he's talking about the, the, the teaching of uh, probably the interaction that he just had with the Pharisees. Watch out of the Pharisees teaching that you need to see to believe, or just watch out for their unbelief that they're propagating. Um, Herod wants the same sort of thing. He wants Jesus. It says in Luke 23, 8, he was hoping to see some sign by Jesus. Uh, Jesus is saying, beware of this, this type of teaching, of this leaven, because it spreads. So leaven is like yeast, right? It spreads throughout the dough. Beware of that kind of teaching. Verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now this is kind of comical in a couple of ways. One, Jesus, it, it says he's, he's cautioning them, saying, like he's, he's teaching them this lesson, don't, don't trust the, or watch out for the leaven of Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And as he's cautioning them, they're discussing with one another that they have no bread. And it's like they hear this leaven, and they're like, oh, oh wait a second. We're, you know, they hear <coughs> about they're hungry for lunch and whatever. Like, it sparks their interest. It reminds me of, like, in a classroom, the teacher is, like, going on this lesson, and he's getting into it, and the students are all, like, sitting back and they're, like, passing a note, like, where are we going for lunch, Carl's Jr. or whatever. And it's like, no, you, you're, you're missing the, the teaching, but, but, okay, like, Jesus is about to go into this, like, deep lesson, I assume. He's wanting to teach them about the Pharisees and Herod and unbelief and faith and spiritual understanding, and the disciples' minds are on something just material, like where are we going to get lunch? Now, when they notice that they don't have any bread, in that moment, what should they realize? What should be fresh in their memory? Oh, we don't have enough bread. It's okay, we're with Jesus. Yeah. He could provide more bread. He could make, it seems maybe they had one loaf so he could provide more. Like, there should be no worry. There should be a, a passing kind of thought. Maybe we could finish Jesus' lesson and then he could do a miracle for us to, to make more bread. But what happens? They forget again. It's interesting how, how confident I think the Pharisees are and what they know and how ignorant and kind of unaware the disciples are. They're like, the bread, oh, hungry, okay, what? How am I and in verse 17, it says, and Jesus, aware of this, what, where are we going to get bread, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
having eyes that do not see and having ears that do not hear. And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. <laughs> and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said, um, seven. <laughs> and he said to them, do you not yet understand? It's the third time within a couple of chapters that they don't have enough bread and they don't know what they're going to do when they're with Jesus. This whole kind of section in Mark, uh, the middle kind of section of the book, Mark is drawing specific attention oftentimes to the struggle of the disciples of their ignorance and how, how blind they are. Uh, in chapter 4, after telling the parable of the soils, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? After Jesus walks on water in chapter 6, he got in the boat with them when the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. After talking what we saw two weeks ago about what brings defilement, he said to them, then are you also without understanding? And in a couple weeks, we're going to see Jesus talks about rising from the dead, and to keep the matter to themselves, but it says questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Look at that. They're, the guys aren't, I mean, we give them some credit because we're, it's easy for us to just kind of look into the story after all has been written, but they're not real smart. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think that Mark is, is emphasizing these guys aren't spiritually... Um, innately really with it, like they have something special that nobody else has. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, <laughs> do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember, he says? Imagine, um, like, the way that I... I say that, I think probably sounds more frustrated maybe than Jesus did. Uh, if, if Jesus was me, this is like where I'm popping off saying, are you blind, you, you know, you idiots, and just frustrated out of my mind, you freaking kidding me, the bread again, you're worried about the bread again? But I don't, I don't think, I mean, doesn't, Mark doesn't describe the tone here, but I don't think he is, is belittling the disciples and their lack of understanding. Um, I think he's teaching them. So, do you not yet understand means, see, you, you don't even, you don't understand even still, do you? Like, just be, be aware of this, that you are not understanding fully. I think he's pointing at, he knows the answer. Do you not yet understand? He, he knows, that they've just demonstrated it. He knows that they don't understand. Um, I don't think he's so frustrated with the disciples. I think he's frustrated with the Pharisees before that. That's when it says they were testing him, and he sighed deeply. That's like a groan. <laughs> For the Pharisees. Not that Jesus couldn't have gotten frustrated with the disciples. Maybe he did. But the disciples seem to have this posture over time of sticking with Jesus and, and learning. They ask him about the, parable, the parables. Can you tell me what that means? Tell me what that means. And, and they're sticking with it, and he's sticking with them. And interestingly, who does Jesus do most of his signs and wonders in front of? But those disciples, the people who are learning from him. 
And as I said, I think it's a few days from now, Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain on his glory in the transfiguration, and he shows himself and much of his glory to three dumb disciples. So it's kind of humorous um, that as Jesus wants to teach them these spiritual realities, all they can worry about is lunch. Um, but I wonder how oftentimes that's me, that there's something amazing that like God is able and willing to teach me, and I'm just still stuck on something that he showed me a hundred times before, that I'm having trouble getting <coughs> my skull. I wonder how often, like, Jesus has to teach us the same thing. He has to teach me, he has to teach you the same thing again and again and again. Have you ever had those types of things? It's like, I know, I've already learned this, but you, you, he teaches again and again. And I'm thick-headed, and sometimes I have a breakthrough of spiritual understanding, but then I forget, and he has to teach me again. And oftentimes I think God would be saying, do you not understand yet? Like, okay, let me show you again. Let me do this miracle again. Do you see now? Do you see now? It'd be amazing if the moment we come to know Christ, we're downloaded with all of the information, all of the Google Plex of information about Jesus that he knows. When we come to know him or we get baptized, like we're imparted all this spiritual knowledge, but that's just not how it works, is it? Like we have a, a gradual increase slowly over time of our knowledge of who Jesus is. And all of those, like it'd be great if we immediately knew upon belief all of how to answer all of the difficult God questions about life and death and suffering and purpose. Like if, oh, we're converted, now we don't have to have those questions because I know fully how, how God operates and I know fully everything that there is to know Jesus. But it doesn't happen that way. He teaches us again and again and he's patient. And he shows us again and he shows us again. And eventually I start to see. But it takes a continual work of Jesus to open my eyes. So watch this, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. If you pull this story out of its context and just kind of read it for what it is, it's, it just, just as a little tiny um, few verses. <clears throat> one of the most peculiar, mind-bending kind of materials because it seems like Jesus tries to perform this miracle, doesn't quite work. Uh, you don't see anything? Okay, let me try again. And then all of a sudden, the, the next time it works and he sees clearly. But you see what Jesus may be demonstrating here, what Mark is demonstrating by putting this miracle here. Like, he, Jesus knows it's, it's not going to take the first time when he's healing this guy. He, he knows that. Jesus is more than aware of that. There isn't any other miracle that we read about where Jesus asked the question, did it work? Like he asked in verse 23, do you see anything? It's Jesus knows like when they see or not, but he asked that question. It's not a question of Jesus wondering, but he's saying, you, you don't see clearly yet, do you? Let me do it again. 
and now you do. And after that, the repetition of Jesus' touch, the man then is able to see clearly. You see kind of what's going on there in this demonstration. Sight is a common metaphor even for us for understanding, right? We say, oh, I see, meaning I understand that I've been made aware. And Jesus demonstrates in this miracle, our spiritual understanding doesn't come all at once. Sometimes God has to do the same thing again and again in our life, and then we can begin to see clearly. And Jesus wants to teach his disciples so much more about himself and so much more about the kingdom. And I think in the boat, the lesson that he would want to tell them is from the um, something that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, where it's like, hey, don't worry about what you eat and drink and how much bread you have. Like, stop worrying about those things. There will be enough bread to eat. Don't worry. Look at the birds of the air, that, that whole um, part of his uh, teaching. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds. Are you not of more value than they? Oh, you of little faith. Like, I think Jesus would want to tell them in the boat, hey, I have everything under control. I can pull bread out of thin air if I want to. And I'm going to show you again and again and again until you get it. How many times has he taught us the, that very same type of lesson? I showed you this before. You don't see clearly yet? Okay, I'm gonna, I'll show you again. And I'm gonna show, and gently, he, he shows us again. Sometimes not so gently, he shows us again. And we have so much more to learn about Jesus. Um, so here's where I want to land. Um, our knowledge of Jesus is very limited. The disciples are willing to learn. They're willing to follow Jesus to stick with him and to learn and grow from his teachings. Uh, you've heard us say it before, but a, a kind of direct translation of that word disciple, mathetes, mathetes, I don't know how to say it, is learner. Okay, that's kind of a raw definition of disciple. That, isn't, that doesn't exactly describe the Pharisees, does it? Learner, no, they're not a disciple. They start with the assumption, I can see clearly. But they're really blind. So the Pharisees, on the one hand, are these, they start smart with a posture of trying to prove their version of their understanding, their version of Christ, while the disciples start dumb. And next week we're going to see, oh, they're beginning to understand that he is the real Christ. They're beginning to understand Christ as he actually is, and he's going to have to keep teaching them more and more. So as you approach Jesus, will you start smart or dumb? Like will you start thinking, I know what I know, let me confirm what I know about God, about Christ? Or will you start saying, I don't know much, but I, I want to keep learning? Doesn't that cause us to stick close to Jesus and stick close to his word? And to that person, he, re he reveals himself more and more. You've probably had the, um, felt the conflict of the Pharisees before, maybe in a little different way. If you haven't just said, God, would you prove yourself to me that you exist or something like that. Um, but maybe there's been a time in your life when you face something difficult, something that you're trying to make sense of. You're trying to understand God in the midst of kind of a confusing thing. Well, where is God? Why isn't he doing this? Why isn't he acting this way? God, why would you 
let this happen. I thought you were this. I thought you were compassionate and good, so why did you let this happen? I thought you were just, so why did you let this happen? I thought you don't like suffering, so why would you let this happen? And you're thinking, I'm, I'm already certain that you are this way, but God, you're not acting like it. So you say, start proving yourself and tell God, right? The problem with that, we're wanting God to show us a sign to make sure he's going to fit in our already created, limited, very limited in size box of who he is. I think this is who God is, so this is how I think God should act. So God, show me that you are who I think you are, and then I will believe you are who I think you are. The problem, we're starting with one, one Googleplex of the knowledge of, that, that Christ himself has. You're looking for a sign for God to prove himself as God, as the God of your limited, dumb imagination I wrote down. <laughs> but Jesus wants to show us who he truly is, not who we've made him up to be. So if God isn't showing up in our lives as we think he should, it's not because he can't prove himself, it's because we've misunderstood some element of who he is. Now I'm not saying everything we know about Jesus, everything we know about God, it's totally wrong. Like God has revealed things to us about himself, things that we can be confident in. But there are some pieces yet of the puzzle, many, that we don't have yet, right? There's some some elements about God and how he operates that we don't understand yet. So we get upset with God, we're screaming out, God, why, why, why? <coughs> Instead of starting dumb, saying, God, can you, can you show me again? God, can you, can you teach me again? God, I, I don't come to you already knowing, but I come to you, Jesus, as a learner. Jesus, I'm slow to understand, but I want to understand. And where I don't understand, I want to trust you. And I'm, I'm, can we come to a saying, I'm, I'm starting here, God, with very little knowledge. You know me. You know that, no, I don't understand yet. You could ask me that question, but you know the answer just like you know it with the disciples. I see people walking, but they look like trees walking. That's what we say to God. Will you touch my eyes again, Jesus? And again and again until I can see. It can be kind of unnerving, I just want to put this out there too, um, to think that maybe Jesus is not who I thought he was. You know, when he's not acting like he's not proving himself, but we think he should prove himself. That can be like, oh, wait a second, I thought, I thought that God was love, and I thought all these things that I've learned about him was, was true. And <coughs> Understand me, I'm not trying to deconstruct what we've already learned about Jesus. It's not just right how in our minds, but, but we've learned so much about him. We can learn, as we read the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, we can learn in both cases, Jesus has compassion. He sees need, he's compassionate. He's able to do whatever he wants. He is able to meet needs. We can be certain of those things. We need to remember that. Sometimes we have to be reminded of those things, and at some point he's going to have to show us again that those things are true. But we can be confident. Yes, we're reading, we're learning. He is compassionate. He can meet needs. But I want you guys to see that we have so much more to learn. 
there's so much more, like Christian said, that God wants us to learn about the bigness of Jesus. He has so much more to show us. And when he's not acting how we think he should, it's because of our lack of understanding of who he actually is. And God will let you down. I promise, God will let you down if you think you understand him and then you ask him to stack up to the incomplete understanding of him that you actually have. He's going to let you down in that scenario. So let's not demand that God (coughs) act in a way that satisfies our limited understanding of who he is. At times he might not seem like he's compassionate. At times he might not seem like he's powerful. But maybe there's part of the equation that you don't yet know. Some pieces that you don't have yet. Maybe we're not seeing clearly yet. And Jesus wants us to come to him again for another touch to our eyes. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. One commentator said about those verses, this, these verses, cancel the useless and debilitating question, why, in the face of life's difficulties. It opens the door to the blessed reality of faith in a God who is truly God. If we stick with him, if we're learning from him, if we're willing to learn, if we're willing to trust, he'll show us. Let's pray. Father, I asked that you would show us who you are as the Father. I ask that you would show us clearly, one step at a time, who Jesus is, who your Spirit is. Would you show us again and again where we tend to forget? And as we learn, would you open our minds to even more and more about the bigness and the greatness of who you are? God, we don't want you just to prove to us the little version that we think we have of you. We want to know the real you. We want to know who you truly are. So Jesus, help us to come to you humbly, willing to learn, willing to grow. And we trust that you'll open our eyes one miracle at a time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.